And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. In the early 90s, there was a group, they came out of San Francisco and they were called the Society for Secular Armageddonism. Secular Armageddonism. (laughs) They described themselves as a non-religious group dedicated to promoting public awareness of the coming end of the world. They believe that uh, with the proliferation of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, the many environmental concerns, the AIDS pandemic, the population explosion, and numerous other issues, they were all proof that the end was near and that we don't need God to do it for us. It will be a strictly do-it-yourself apocalypse. Now, we understand Even if what they said had come true or would come true shortly, we understand that God is behind all of that. Uh, History is His. Uh, But they they just saw that things seem to be winding down, and, and there is some truth to that, I believe. Well, the Lord spoke on several occasions about His coming kingdom. Uh, our text is one of two such major texts in the book of Luke. The other one is in chapter 21. And our text this morning falls into two sections, verses 20 and 21. Jesus is, he responds to the Pharisees' question as to when the kingdom of God is coming. And then he spends the rest of the time, verses 22 through 37, speaking to the disciples on the same topic. So this is an extended piece, but it all has to do with the second coming of Jesus. And it says something about his present kingdom. He really shows us that there is a twofold nature uh, to the kingdom, both a present and future dimension. Daryl Bach, uh, he sums up Jesus' reply here. He says, you don't need to look for the kingdom in signs, in signs because it's king and so its presence is right before you. But its display and comprehensive power will come visibly to all one day. All right, so something's going on now, but something big is going to happen down the road. And he says, you will not need to hunt to hunt to find it then. (laughs) It's going to be obvious. Another commentator puts it, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is already a present reality in him, but that that its final consummation lies in the future when he comes in divine majesty. Now, Bible prophecy isn't given to us so that we can sit around and speculate about what's going to happen in the future, as fun as that might be. It's always given so that we can apply it to how we live in the present in light of what God has promised to do in the future. In other words, down the road. Now, specifically, it's crucial that we understand personally how to be in God's kingdom. Jesus makes it clear here that His awful judgment will fall suddenly and certainly on everyone who is not in His kingdom. So that's one thing we've got to figure out today. What does it mean to be in His kingdom? And so he shows us here that to be in God's kingdom, we must be personally related to God's King Jesus. And we must faithfully await the King's consummation when He returns in glory to judge everyone. Well, let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we come today needing your assistance as always. We need your Holy Spirit to take away any barriers to our eyes, ears, and hearts so that we can see and hear and understand the truth of your kingdom. Yes, there is a sense in which it is present present now uh, just in your reign through the church. But Father, there is coming a day when you will set up your kingdom and Jesus will be king. And so God, we, we long for that day, but at the same time we understand We have responsibilities here in this kingdom as it stands right now. So God, uh, just show us what that might be and then then give, give us willing hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
So one, to be in God's present kingdom, we must be personally related to God's King Jesus. Now we can't be sure whether the Pharisees were questioning Jesus in a hostile sense or not. Given their track record, uh, they may have well been asking skeptically, well then, when is the kingdom coming? <clears throat> coming? The general Jewish belief was that the, the kingdom of God would begin with a bang, with a powerful Messiah establishing his rule in Israel and delivering the nation from their enemies, primarily Rome, because they were under Roman occupation. But here is this lowly carpenter from nowhere Nazareth with his ragtag band of fishermen. And there's no sign that he's going to defeat the Romans and usher in the glorious new age, which all Israel thought the Messiah would do. Now sure, there were some miracles, that was obvious, but where's the clear evidence that he is establishing his kingdom rule? So Jesus answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, or nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, it's important to translate the end of verse 20 with those words, in your midst, not as the NIV and the King James translate, within you. Now, that translation is possible grammatically, but it is impossible contextually. Jesus never would have told the skeptical and hypocritical Pharisees that the kingdom of God was within them. Besides Jesus, he often talks about a person entering the kingdom, but he never talks about the kingdom entering a person. So what he meant is the kingdom of God is, is here in your very midst, in the person of the king, meaning himself. And yet you have not recognized it because you wrongly expect it to be ushered in with great flourish, with great fanfare. And that simply wasn't the case. They, they, they had forgotten about Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant that must come. They ignored a good part of the Old Testament in looking for the type of Messiah they were looking for. Now when Jesus says that the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed, he's referring to that initial coming of the kingdom, not to his second coming, uh, because he quickly, he quickly adds when he talks to the disciples that that coming will be like a flash of lightning in the sky. That's pretty dramatic. That's pretty observable, pretty obvious. So the initial coming of God's kingdom, it begins relatively unnoticed. It's kind of like planting that little bitty uh, mustard seed in the ground. You won't see any results for a while, right? Well, as people yield their lives to the lordship of Jesus, he begins to reign in their hearts. Now, in that sense, the kingdom is presently being established in and through his church as the gospel is proclaimed and believed. Uh, but this is not the final form of the kingdom. He will return personally in power and glory to judge uh, his enemies to rule over the whole earth as he goes on to teach. Now, as I said, prophecy is never given so that we just sit around and speculate on the future. It's given so that we can submit our lives to God's purpose for history. So the application of verse 20 and 21 is, if you've not personally believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and thus are not living daily under His Lordship, then you're not in the kingdom of God. You're in serious danger of coming under His awful judgment when He returns as suddenly as a flash of lightning, and then it will be too late. So to be in God's present kingdom... We must be personally related to God's King, that's Jesus, by trusting Him as our, our Savior from our sin and submitting, him, submitting to Him as our Lord of our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our everything. 
Now, if you're truly in God's present kingdom, then you'll also be in His future kingdom when He returns. But Jesus gives His followers some warnings uh, to take to heart so that uh, they'll be sure to just endure, to persevere until He comes. So number two, to be in God's future kingdom, we must faithfully await the kingdom's consummation, completion, when Jesus returns in glory to judge everyone. Now, these verses are addressed to Jesus' disciples, not to the Pharisees. The disciples had believed in Jesus, but there was the danger that as time passed and Jesus did not return, that they might lose heart. So he gives them not only the warnings of this section, but also the parable of the unjust judge in chapter 18 to simply encourage them to endure, to encourage them to persevere. Now, there's three particular lessons for us here. First, to be in God's future kingdom requires patient endurance in the present. Jesus here refers to himself as the Son of Man. That's a reference to his authority when he comes in judgment. Now, one of the days, that refers to the day of his return, when he will begin his full reign. And Jesus is warning the disciples that they'll face many times when inwardly they long to see Jesus return in power but they will have to wait because it's not yet God's time. Have you ever been caught in that place where you really just say, Lord, if you want to go ahead and come now, come. Life is balling up on me here. But he didn't. We have to adjust to him. (laughs) Well, this verse is a clear uh, refutation uh, of the notion that Jesus would return shortly after his crucifixion and his resurrection. What believer hasn't longed for the Lord to return and straighten out this messed up world that we live in? We look at some of our problems today, war, violence, greed, crime, uh, corruption, immorality, the the political um, turmoil, the pollution of God's just magnificent creation, and and many other problems, and we cry out, how long, O Lord? How long? I want you to listen to this description of the times. It is a gloomy moment in the history of our country. Not in the lifetime of most men has there been so much grave and deep apprehension. Never has the future seemed so incalculable as at this time. The domestic economic situation is in chaos. Our dollar is weak throughout the world. Prices are so high as to be utterly impossible. The political cauldron seethes and bubbles with uncertainty. Russia hangs, as usual, like a cloud, dark and silent upon the horizon. It is a solemn moment. Of our troubles, no man can see the end. End quote. Now, you know what that's from? That's from Harper's Magazine, October 10th, 1847. Seems that people have thought life is tough and not too bright for an awful long time. Christians have always known that the only answer to this situation is Jesus. He's the only one that can deliver from the mess that we find ourselves in. We look at our own personal problems and trials that we all struggle with, family problems, uh, medical problems, financial problems, the list goes on and on and on, and we cry out, how long, O Lord? How wonderful it will be when Jesus delivers us once and all from all of these difficult problems. But you know what? Until then, We have to patiently endure as we wait with hope at His coming. Peter warns us that while we wait, mockers will come. He says they're following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, since, since, since long ago, we, we've talked about the return of Christ. And he says these mockers are going to come and say, hey, it hasn't happened yet. Ever since our fathers died, we've been waiting and nothing has happened. Maybe it's just a big hoax. But as Peter goes on to show, their mocking does not negate the reality of Jesus' coming to judge the earth. So it requires endurance in the here and now. Well, second, to be in God's future kingdom requires discernment in the present. As we wait, and yet we do not see His coming, false Christ will arise and people will tempt us to, to turn to those who seem to, have, to, the, to who seem to have the answers that we need right now. Look there, look here. But Jesus says, don't go that way. Do not run after them. Now, we're always vulnerable to the temptation of turning to quick fix answers rather than patiently waiting on the Lord. Now this is especially true of us Americans. Uh, we're all pragmatists at heart. If it works, it must be true. If it doesn't work, at least according to my timetable, then it must be false. So if Jesus Christ isn't fixing my problem as quickly as I think He should, and someone else says, hey, try this approach, it works, I'm in danger of being led astray from the truth as it is in Jesus. In Luke 21.8, Jesus warns, See to it that you be not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am He. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them, Jesus says. You see, Satan doesn't try to lead us astray by something or someone who is blatantly false or blatantly evil, but by those who come in Jesus' name. So be careful. Needs discernment. So at endurance, discernment. Third, to be in God's future kingdom requires, requires faithful readiness in the present. Jesus goes on to emphasize the suddenness of His coming. But he's also careful to state that first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this particular generation. But after that, when his kingdom does come in its final phase, it, it will be sudden and, and, and it will not be uh, hidden and obscure. The initial inner spiritual phase of the kingdom is that way. Rather, this, when he comes to return in glory, it'll be like a lightning flash across the sky. Uh, it'll be sudden, it'll be observable by everyone. But at that point, it's going to be too late to change sides. So the time to get ready and to get into Jesus' kingdom is now, it's today, not later. Jesus uses two examples from history, Noah and Lot. And he's illustrating the same point, namely the need to be ready for the certain and coming day of judgment when Jesus returns. Now notice that Jesus assumes the historicity of these two events, the flood and the judgment on, on Sodom. They were actual events, and this is what Jesus is telling us. Uh, they're given to us here as two graphic warnings of the coming judgment on the whole earth at the second coming. Now both the people of Noah's time and the people of Sodom in Lot's day, they were notoriously wicked. But Jesus doesn't focus here on their flagrant evil, he shows us that they just went about their natural, affair, normal affairs of life, oblivious to God in the coming judgment. Now, there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and with getting married. The problem was that the people of Noah's day lived without regard to God and the warnings of the impending flood. You remember, Noah preached 120 years. 
And they laughed at at Noah as a crazy man. But they stopped laughing when the waters started rising and Noah was secure with his family inside of that ark. But by then, it was too late. The same was true in Lot's day. There's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. That's all normal stuff. The problem was they were living in total disregard of God. Now, as you know from the story of Genesis 19, the people of Sodom were grossly immoral, but that wasn't the Lord's focus here. If he had focused on that, then decent, moral people like the Pharisees, they would have thought, well, we're in no danger because we don't live like the the people of Sodom lived. But as Jesus states it, the warning is for people who just go on with life as if judgment will never come. They have no regard for the things of God or eternity. But one day, the Son of Man will suddenly be revealed in power and glory. And these foolish people will be destroyed by God's judgment. Jesus goes on in verses 31 to 35 to give a graphic, uh, specific description of what it will be like when he returns. Someone will be on his housetop. That would be like our modern day patio. They're up there just cooling out in the afternoon. Uh, He's lounging there when the lightning flash of Christ's return suddenly hits. He's not even to take time to go into his house and get any of his belongings. Rather, he must flee the judgment that will swiftly follow. If a man is working out in the fields, he must not go back into his house, and he, but he has to head for safety. And then Jesus pointedly warns, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? She started to flee out of Sodom on that day of judgment, but her heart was still there. Disobeying the angel's command, she actually turned around to look back at Sodom. And what happened? She was turned into a pillar of salt. She perished in that awful judgment. And then Jesus states the principle, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. In other words, to be so attracted to the things of this earth that we want to hang on to them more than we want heaven, that's to jeopardize our eternal souls. But to let go of all those things that the world values and to live in light of Jesus' coming will result in ultimate and final salvation. Now, it may mean hardship and suffering in comparison with those who are living for this life only. Think about to chapter 16, we talked about Lazarus and the rich man, right? The rich man had it good then, and Lazarus was suffering. Um, but when Jesus comes and God's final judgment falls, uh, you'll be the one to preserve your life like Lazarus, and they will lose theirs. So remember Lot's wife. Jesus continues his graphic description with two more examples in verses 34 and 35. The third example, uh, some of you have a verse 36 in your Bible, some don't, some have a little footmark. Uh, It has very weak manuscript uh, support. Uh, The earliest manuscripts do not contain this verse here. It actually comes from Matthew 24, 40. It was probably added later by a scribe. So we've really got two examples. First, two will be in the same bed. One will be taken and the other one left. Second, two women are going to be grinding mill, uh, grinding flour at the same place. One's going to be taken and the other will be left. Now, it's not clear whether the one taken is taken away to judgment while the other one left is left to enter the kingdom or vice versa. It's not real clear. Now, in light of the context where Noah 
Lot, the one on the roof, and the one in the uh, field, they all escape judgment by fleeing, whereas those left behind, they're prey for vultures. It's probably those that are taken, they go to safety, whereas those who are left behind are overtaken by God's judgment. But don't get hung up debating the details of this passage and miss the critical point. When Jesus suddenly returns, all humanity is going to be split, as it were, interdivided into two groups. Those who have lived for themselves with no regard for God, without submitting themselves uh, to His kingdom, they're going to fall under His judgment and they're going to be left as carcasses for the vultures. The other group are those who have submitted their lives to King Jesus before He comes. Uh, They're not seeking to live for this life only, accumulating the junk that the world lives for. They've willingly given up their lives for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. Their focus is on the Lord and on His second coming. They will escape judgment. Now, note that being close to someone who escapes is not good enough. You must escape God's wrath personally. Verse 37 is a difficult verse to understand. The disciples question, where, Lord? It's rather ambiguous. It's unclear. Are are they asking where He will, will return? Or where the judgment will take place? Or well, where will those who are taken, where will they be taken? Well, in light of Jesus' answer, uh, they're probably asking where the judgment would take place. And Jesus' answer is also hard to understand, and there are a variety of interpretations. It could mean that just as vultures gather on dead bodies, so where the spiritually dead are, there inevitably will be judgment there. Or the sense could be that when uh, judgment comes, it will be obvious, just as the location of a corpse is obvious by the presence of vultures. Or it could mean more. The judgment not only will be obvious, but it will be universal and per- permanent. So once judgment comes, it will be final. In that sense, Jesus may be saying, don't worry about where the judgment will occur, because once it comes, it will be too late, and all will see it in its horrific finality. The overall point that Jesus is making is that this coming will be sudden and therefore we must be prepared in advance. Once it gets here, there's really nothing you can do about it. To go on about life, oblivious to God's present kingdom and with no concern for His future kingdom, that's to expose yourself to great danger. Each person must submit to Jesus as king now and live in light of His soon and certain coming. It's only then that you will not be taken by surprise. Now, as you know, or may know, there are three major views regarding Christ's kingdom. The amillennial view teaches that the kingdom is his spiritual reign over his people in this age, in the church age. Now, the promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob concerning their possession of the land of Canaan and their descendants ruling over all the nations, those are spiritually fulfilled in Christ now. The postmillennial view teaches that Christ's kingdom will come gradually, but certainly as the gospel spreads and ultimately triumphs over the earth. They often cite Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The premillennial view 
It holds that Jesus will return in power and glory to judge this wicked world and to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Now those are the three main views. They're, they're all kind of variants. These views all differ to the timing of the second coming. But these three views also share some things in common. Jesus is coming again bodily, in power and in glory. And when he comes, he will judge every person. Therefore, we need to be ready for his coming by trusting him as Savior and submitting to him as Lord now. To deny these things that all of these views share in common, that would be to deny the core of what Jesus himself taught. Dr. Joseph Stowell, president of Moody Bible Institute, once visited a home for mentally challenged children that was operated by a Christian friend. And noticing the children's handprints on the windows, Dr. Stowell remarked about them to his friend. And the friend says, oh, those? Well, the children here love Jesus. And they're so eager for him to return that they lean against the windows as they look up to heaven for him. Now that's not a mentally challenged way to live. May we all imitate those simple children by making sure that we are in Christ's present kingdom and by faithfully awaiting His soon and coming future kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word and how it challenges us. Lord, if we'll simply read it. And today we have a passage before us that talks about Your kingdom, uh, Father, and the, and, and the fact that, yes, there is a sense in which the kingdom is alive and well. Uh, Father, it's in your people as you reign in their hearts today. That kingdom is present and it goes forward and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But there's another sense in which uh, you, your son Jesus will be coming bodily, physically in power and in glory and will set up the final kingdom. And, and Lord, we, we long for that day. Ultimately, uh, Lord, that's, that's where we're headed and uh, we thank you for that. And I ask that you would just speak to our hearts this morning that we'd be able to see the difference between being in the kingdom and being not in the kingdom. God, do your work in our hearts and we'll give you praise and glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, earlier I said that when Jesus comes again, it's going to divide humanity into two groups, right? Those who have not been mindful of God, they've been mindful of this world and those things and paid no attention to eternity. And then you, and that'll be one group. And the other group is those that know they have lived for Christ and for His kingdom. In other words, the saved and the unsaved. That division, that, that exists today. There, there's, no, there's no difference. You can divide humanity into two, two folds, two divisions, whatever you want to call them, two types of people. You're either in Christ or you're not. Today's message is about if you're not in Christ, you need to get in Christ. Because if you're not in Christ right now and Jesus should come, should come back, split the skies open and the whole world sees Him come, it's over for you. You, you need to get right today. Paul says, that's, why, that's one of the reasons Paul says today is the day of salvation. So I encourage you today, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, Savior is simply the fact that yes, He died on the cross and through that you have forgiveness of sin. So you trust Him with your eternity. Uh, repentance has to do towards God. It's you, it's, you have offended God. And so you ask for mercy. That's the only thing that we can plead before God is mercy. He doesn't owe us anything. 
He created us. He owns us. He doesn't owe us. So I encourage you today, if you know that you're not in Christ, today is the day. Don't run from whatever's going on inside of you. Run to it. You seek God today while He may be found. If, if you're a believer, uh, we, had, we had a testimony this morning, uh, you know, for uh, how, how, what's the song? How, how great thou art. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, John Wells' testimony was, was, was really good. He said that he was, in, he was in Walmart and he was getting some paint mixed. Well, that takes three or four minutes for them to shake it. So he's standing there with a the guy and he just starts a conversation with him. And the guy says he's not doing too good because his wife has been sick for nine months. And it has, it has totally caused his life to go into some upheaval. And he says, I'm just really searching. <laughs> John was able to speak some truth into his life to pray with the man and invite him to church. Now here's what's interesting. God gives all of us as believers that same opportunity every day. We we'll call them divine appointments. Here's the problem. We're so busy in this world... We don't, we're not sensitive to the Holy Spirit saying, hey, pay attention. I've got something here for you. If you will just talk. And it doesn't have to be anything super deep, super theological. John didn't get into any crazy doctrine with a guy. He just said, hey, can I pray for you? That's, that's all it takes, folks. But you've got to be sensitive. How many of you are aware of the discipline of silence? Uh... Yeah, Jeremy, we need it. Prayer is not just a one-way communication. Yes, there are times when we shoot up prayers on the spot and say, help me, God, and He helps us. But beyond that, Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. place where I sit and read my Bible and do my study every morning, I've got a sign over it. Lifeway was going out of business, so I got it on the cheap. But it's a really nice thing, and it's about this big, and it says, Be still and know that I am God. And that's where I do it, right there every morning. You've got to be still. You've got to be, I pray every morning that I will be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. So that when I'm in Walmart and I strike up a conversation with something because we're, with somebody we're standing there, that I find out where they're hurting and I just tell them about Jesus. It can be as simple as just asking to, to pray for them. And you say a 15-second prayer for them. That can be the start of something incredible in their life. But if you're not still, if you're not sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you'll walk right by it. I just walked out of camera, so I'll walk back in. You've got to be sensitive. I hope that you're being sensitive to the present kingdom of God as He is ruling and reigning in your heart right now. He wants to use you to reach others. And that's part of that perseverance and faithfulness and discernment that we're to have in this present kingdom as we await the second coming. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.